0: Welcome to statewide reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Ahead, a mother who lost her daughter in a car accident calls out the dangers of distracted driving. We'll also hear how an electric vehicle maker in Illinois wants to force employees into arbitration to resolve claims of sexual harassment or assault. Also, more about recent changes in breastfeeding guidelines and why advocates say more support is needed for breastfeeding mothers. We'll look back to a tense time in American history, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the role an Illinois lawmaker played in helping resolve it. Also, what do scientists think could be the grain of the future? Those stories and more coming up this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Just ahead, the stories of what's known as Little Egypt put to song. But first, 60 years ago, President John F. Kennedy faced a crisis in a bipartisan manner just weeks before a heated midterm election. Chris Kergaard with the Dirksen Congressional Center in Pekin explains how Kennedy found his off-ramp from nuclear Armageddon and what lessons that story might teach us today.
1: There's a risk that twenty years less than twenty years after the US is the only nation to, to use atomic weapons in the middle of the arms race, in the middle of the Cold War, that the two major nuclear powers are are standing eyeball to eyeball, and there's really no way that anybody can see to scale things back. Although Kennedy is less than willing to accept the advice of his advisors to invade or to bomb because he knows that that escalates what's already a a difficult crisis and sends everybody down a path to war.
2: So what does Kennedy do? I mean, in terms of he's got a very difficult decision. He's got all these people telling him all these different things. How does he come to a decision?
1: Kennedy and and you know he's he's getting advice from the military from XCOM, from his his brother Bobby who's who's a part of XCOM and and is is also a close advisor to him and they're having private conversations in there and ultimately Kennedy decides to take a still still escalatory but less aggressive step to begin a naval blockade of Cuba. And this is all happening against the backdrop of, of trying to communicate with the Russians about what their intent is and finding a way to, to de-escalate the situation. There are messages sent both directly and through intermediaries to Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier at the time. And and as we see over the course of the, the ensuing week and change, there are, are two messages that are received from Khrushchev. One Fairly bellicose, banging the, the war drums, the other one a little more conciliatory. Uh, and against all of this backdrop, Kennedy also arranges to have Air Force jets sent, transport planes sent to bring back the congressional leadership to Washington. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, he is going to have to tell the country that this is going on. This, this is all, all the way through October 22nd, has all been behind the scenes. And at the point that the naval blockade begins, Kennedy knows that he is going to need to tell the country that this is going on, that this is a concern, and that's that's when, in the public consciousness, everybody really becomes worried about this and and starts to truly truly be considered freak out as a, a bad term, but truly get get an existential worry yeah. over that ensuing week from the the twenty second through the twenty eighth or so about how this is going to wrap up.
2: And, of course, when the congressional leadership comes back to Washington, that includes Everett Dirksen from Pekin, who Kennedy was just campaigning against.
1: Exactly. And, and Dirksen has a little bit of fun with that when he walks into the meeting. He says, well, I uh, that that was quite a speech you gave, Mr. President, to come down with a cold this serious. And at that point, Kennedy outlines his plan to the, the leadership. Interestingly, he gets a little more pushback from some of the key Democrats in leadership, Richard Russell from, from Georgia, William Fulbright from Arkansas, uh, head of the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees, they're kind of pushing invasion along with the Joint Chiefs. And it it's Dirksen, it's Charlie Halleck from Indiana, the Republican leader, who in in the middle of the meeting indicate, we're standing with the President on this and, and that's that's the conclusion everybody comes around to by the time they leave the meeting such that when, uh, when they actually get, get out of that meeting, the Republican leaders release a statement, a, a joint statement among the Republican leaders saying that, quote, all Americans will support the president on the decision or decisions he makes for the security of our country. Now imagine that 14 days out from a national election, you have the folks from the other side of the aisle who are saying, we're standing with the president on this, we trust the president, We've seen some of that unanimity in the current Ukraine crisis over the last eight months. But parts of that are beginning to fray a little bit, and and we're beginning to see more of that concern today over whether post-midterm the sides will stay together on supporting the Ukraine,
2: and that's that's really interesting because this this kind of policy you're describing of you know the disagreements end when it comes to foreign policy. We all stand behind the president. We're one united front. Uh, I, I don't know when that philosophy started to disintegrate. It seems like that consensus no longer holds.
1: Exactly, it, it's something that that has has faded over time, and certainly there's there's criticism over pieces of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus that have been less successful. Vietnam is the instance that a lot of people will point to as one where there was broad bipartisan consensus on that for many years. But certainly over the last 30 years, there's there's been much more of a, a fade in that regard. And Ukraine has sort of stepped it back to what it had been for a long time. And it, it's interesting that 60 years after the fact, what's brought us back to some of that bipartisan politics stops at the water's edge on foreign policy is again russian aggression in a sovereign state and how that's all turned out for us today
2: yeah and i mean that's that's kind of interesting so what what can we what can we take from how dirksen and the other leaders acted back in 1962 during the cuban missile crisis and say are there lessons to be learned from that today
1: certainly i would say that the the first lesson that we can learn from that is is the the internal discussion part of that lesson that you know everybody has the meeting and they they weigh their pros and their cons and and they understand the the seriousness of of what they're grappling with they aren't posturing for the television cameras or or for an audience beyond the good of the country and and that's truly what what they were all looking for there is what ends up being best for the country. And they were also willing to, to rethink their own prejudices or internal gut reactions to something and, and keep an open mind about them. And, and we see that not just in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in the next step after the Cuban Missile Crisis as well. Both Kennedy and Khrushchev end up beginning work again on, on what had been stalled for a couple of years, the partial nuclear test ban treaty, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this is them realizing how close they came to the brink of nuclear war, trying to step back from that. And as all of this goes along, you, you run into the same kinds of concerns that you had during the Cuban Missile Crisis with members of the military, with some more hawkish people in, in both parties concerned that the United States is potentially giving away an advantage here uh, to the Russians in, in the treaty. And you, you once again have some of that bipartisan consensus come in. Uh, Dirksen talks specifically about keeping an open mind on that treaty, about having private conversations and consultation with the president on that treaty. Uh, he meets with him repeatedly and... Dirksen ends up walking away with a a letter from the president that says, look, this is not going to stop us from doing underground nuclear testing if we want. This is not going to stop us from if we need to retaliate because we are attacked from using any of our arsenal if we have to, nuclear or non-nuclear. Dirksen is sold on the treaty. He is willing to, to rethink his own gut reaction, which was some of those same concerns, stands up in favor of the treaty, says on the floor of the Senate in a, a speech that people credit as, as helping turn the tide in favor of the treaty, he says, quote, I want to take a first step. I should not like to have written on my tombstone, he knew what happened at Hiroshima, but he did not take the first.
0: That's Chris Kergaard with the Everett Dirksen Congressional Center explaining the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the late U.S. senator's role in averting a nuclear conflict. He spoke with Tim Shelley. Some Illinois lawmakers are trying to close a loophole that allows pawnbrokers to offer loans at triple-digit interest rates. Alex Degman explains. A law that took effect last year caps
3: the amount of interest that payday, title, or pawn lenders are allowed to charge at 36%. But pawnbrokers complained, and a Sangamon County judge issued an injunction, which has been in place for more than a year. But State Senator Jacqueline Collins of Chicago has a measure to clarify that loans include money borrowed through pawn shop transactions.
4: Pawnbrokers are making an argument that what they issue are not really loans, and yet they advertise loans, you know, on their posters and in their windows.
3: If passed, this would take effect in June. Collins says she has a meeting with House Speaker Emanuel Chris
0: Welch after Thanksgiving to talk about it. I'm Alex Degman. Well, a new album dropped this week telling the tales of the land known as Little Egypt. Jennifer Fuller talked with the producer and songwriter Jenny Pape about We Are for Egypt.
5: Down in
6: I got an email from Stacy Davidson, who is an Egyptologist and a professor in Kansas City, Missouri. But she's originally from Marion, Illinois. And so she received a grant to fund this album. But it's a part of this larger historical research project um, that is examining the Egyptian identity. So she contacted me and she had seen works I had done as a songwriter and producer in the area. And she saw what I had done and said, hey, I would love to do what you did on this on these previous albums and I want you incorporate more of the community, more songwriters. So that was such a wonderful invitation to get uh, songwriters from the area on board and and it was, yeah, it's been fun. A lot of your work already has been grounded in the heritage and the history of Southern Mm -hmm. Illinois. How important is it to keep that? It's just a part of, I don't know, I, I love the identity of this area. I love who we are and I feel like You know, especially being in a flyover state, you know, as they want to say, um, having, you know, grown up in this rural area, I think it's important to highlight who we are, uh, to remind ourselves of our history and um, that we have wonderful things we should highlight and to not let go of those, and so this project was, you know, about that, about taking um, something—the Egyptian identity—which is not something we all really know about. Like we see the pyramids on our little city signs or courthouses, and we know that Karnak and Cairo and all these towns exist, but we don't know why it is called Little Egypt or Egypt. Um, so it was an exploration of that. As you went through that history did you learn new things? So much. Stacy having being the uh, executive producer of this album funding it for us you know she had so much to inform me about and so um, I actually learned why we're called Egypt or Little Egypt uh, and it's because of the area when it was settled or I should say when Western Europeans moved in in the 19th century uh, there was all these little areas such as you know the the Cahokia Mounds, which sort of resembled pyramids, and us being between the Ohio and the Mississippi River, we had this fertile land which resembled the Nile River in Egypt. Um, so there was already these references, but it happened around the 1830s. There was a drought in central Illinois and northern Illinois, and because of that, um, all of the northern part of the state had to come downstate to get their uh, to get their food and and to get all the bounty of the agriculture that was downstate so people called it going down to Egypt and so they would come down and and get what they needed for sustenance. So tell us a bit about the music then for the yes. album. So that was the hardest part I think <laughs> like because we have so many songwriters who are amazing in this area that I had to just choose you know five songwriters. Um, I chose myself because I'm a songwriter and she asked me to do it. Um, but also Ripley Pryor um, because, you know, he's a blues musician and he's grown up in this area, and he's just such a wonderful person. Oh, i from Carol Town, Lord, I wish she was dead. She so he does acoustic blues. So he wrote a song, he did an original song, and he did um, a traditional tune. Um, Regina Zavala, she's um, from Honduras, and she moved into southern Illinois, and I asked her to sort of write about what is that, you know, Experience immigrating to a new place and becoming a part of this community, and so she had such a, such a beautiful song she wrote because of it. We also had Mila Maring. Uh, Mila Maring is a local musician that probably a lot of people recognize. Um, she's released some music and over the years, and she's just she's. Just got such a beautiful voice, a great thoughtful songwriting approach, and so I knew if she took this on, she would do something very interesting. So she wrote a song about the pirates of the Shawnee. My name
5: is Charlie, I'm a pirate of the Shawnee. We've
6: been here for I wrote about Boomer the dog. <laughs> Boomer, if you know the story about Boomer and Macanda, um, I wrote about that particular story. to writing about, uh, or not writing about, but a song that was called The County of Saline, which came out the 1800s, I think, and it's all about that area, which, you know, Saline County, that's around the Garden of the Gods and, and that area. Banjo-Joe, yeah, he did a great job. He wrote um, about the Marian Rebellion of 1861, which was um, a part of this historical project Um, that was an important point um, to talk about um, because of the history of that rebellion. And so Joe, when he wrote about it, he was like, oh, you know, I actually have um, family connections to um, the story and, you know, he's grown up in this area so he had a lot of connections with that so that story resonated with him
0: jenny pape of miss jenny and the howdy boys talking with wsiu's jennifer fuller the compilation album we are for egypt is available at river to river community records.com you're listening to statewide You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. An accident in Montgomery County three years ago this month took the lives of four people. Among them, two girls, Jenna Protz and her best friend Holly Lighty. Both were 14. They were traveling home from a football game with Jenna's grandparents when they were hit head-on. All four people in the vehicle died. Since then, Jenna's mother, Brenda, has spent her time calling attention to the problem of distracted driving and advocating for victims and their families. Maureen McKinney talked with her to find out how she's doing.
4: Well, you know, coming into year three um, on November 16th, it's hard to say how you feel because there are some moments that it feels like it just happened yesterday. And then there are some moments that it's like a thousand years ago. So um, I think that as, you know we honored um you know jenna and everyone in some way yesterday as the time of this recording it just causes me to i think reflect more than anything on the kindness of so many people i'm just the people that reached out to me yesterday um the people that have been in our corner since day one it's the outpouring of, of love and kindness and prayers is amazing. So many people who support us, either through our um, Facebook page that we have honoring Jenna as, as well as the one that they have honoring Ollie, the people that those pages have reached that don't know any of us, who follow us and support us in some way, the numbers of people who never got to know Jenna but have been there to support us in some way is pretty amazing. She was a girl who was always so preoccupied by the number of likes she got on a Instagram post or something with Snapchat and and so I often say you know she has no idea how she's truly affected the world.
1: Can you tell me about her? What kind of person she was.
4: I'm pretty biased, but in talking to so many people that knew her, I think that my bias is warranted because Jenna was the most kind person. Um, She always made sure that her friends had little presents for every single occasion. Her last. But she was kind. She was passionate about the things that she loved including her athletics and her friends and her family. Um, There wasn't anything about Jenna that wasn't just pure sunshine. You know she was a 14 year old girl with 14 year old frustration but she had so many hopes and for being for being so young she had already been researching where she was going to go to college and you know, all of the things that she potentially wanted to do and there's irony to that even because all of the professions that she had talked about since she was 12 were things that actually all had to work together to deal with her death from mortuary science to crime scene investigation to, you know, being a coroner to being anything related to law enforcement like Forensic pathology was her last thing that she was investigating. And these are all the people that had to come together to figure out her death.
1: Where did she get that idea from?
4: You know, I'm not sure. She loved watching these true crime shows. And she could watch scary movies and never be scared by them. And just there was something about that that she was very, very interested in and liked, you know, I guess solving mysteries in some way. So all I can say is that she was such a light. She just smiled all the time and she wanted to make sure everybody around her was happy. She never wanted people to be sad or crying. And I know that through all of this, I, I think about that a lot. And I know that she would understand that we have to have those moments where we grieve for her and cry for her, but she doesn't want us to stay there there's no doubt in my mind that was not, that was not her personality.
1: She was quite the athlete,
6: wasn't she?
4: She had definitely evolved into a powerhouse on the basketball court and in the gym and the guys would kind of stand there with their mouths open as they would watch her, her consistent three point shot just go in every time. She loves softball she loved um, her field events and track especially the discus and volleyball and she also was a she'd been drag racing since the age of eight in the junior drag racing league so she just did so many things she was involved in so many things like that and involved in so many things from a spiritual perspective as far as youth group and and things like that that um, you know she had a whole other deeper side to her, um, outside of her school and, you know, athletics and academics.
1: The crash happened after a young driver drifted, um, lanes into the path of your family's car. Um, you've now been working on trying to, um, combat distracted driving.
4: You know, our, our legal case is ongoing in Montgomery County. We do know that the driver drifted across. We do know that he was in the wrong lane of traffic for at least a football field and a half. And we know that he hit our family head on and he was injured and was transported to the hospital. And everyone in, in the vehicle driven by my mother-in-law were all killed. So those are the things that we certainly can say that are part of you know the Illinois State Police investigation. And from there, um, it has become my mission. Um, it's become my mission to bring attention to the problem of distracted driving because for someone to do that and to cross a center line and being in, in oncoming traffic, something certainly would need to be distracting you, whatever that is. Whatever that distraction is, it can be as simple as putting on lipstick in a car, um, anything related to your cell phone, anything related to you being sleepy and getting behind the wheel. Those are all distractions, and I've went down the interstate and seen people reading newspapers. Um, anything that keeps your mind, or your eyes, off of the road in front of you is a distraction, whether it's talking to your kids or anything.
1: And how have you been spreading
4: word. The most visible, what I call the Jenna's Joy mobile, which is a Chevrolet Camaro that has been completely um, redone and it has the logo on the side and it's kind of operating off of the thoughts of, of what we want people to know Jenna and what we want to know Holly for is is finding joy in your life and being kind to others and so the side of my car says find joy be kind just drive my license plate says just drive and that's what it is because it's i'm trying to get the message across that it's a privilege to get behind the wheel of a car it's not a right it is a privilege that we are given that can very easily be taken away and to impress upon people you know i spoke to a recent um driver's ed class in Riverton, and just trying to impress upon them the need to just pay attention to what's going on, that anything else can wait. And if it can't, you need to pull over to, you know, take care of that. And if your car has the ability of, you know, talk to text and other things that can run through your car that you don't have to touch anything, utilize that. And so that is first and foremost, what we are trying to do. And then going along with that is um, trying to get some laws changed in In terms of this. I was able to get a law introduced last year in the Illinois State House that was called the Protz-Lighty Act that was basically bringing attention to the need to anybody who is charged with anything related to this, especially with great bodily harm or death um, that the minute they're charged they should be losing their license and there's some things that have to be worked it didn't get out of the assignments committee last time some things that need to be worked out so that it also includes more juvenile wording because the driver in our situation I mean has never lost his license in three years that's been the hardest thing for me is that the four lives can end without a license being taken at the bare minimum. So that's what I want to make sure that privilege is lost pending judicial outcome. Um, in any case for somebody that has to go through this, you know, again, people often ask if this changes you, if going through something like this changes you. And there's absolutely no doubt about that. But what I don't want it to ever do is change me in such a way that I don't want to help others. And that I don't want to have something good come out of this tragedy. And, you know, the loss of Jenna, the loss of Holly, the loss of my former in-laws, Jackie and Bill Pratt's amazing people. um, Any one of those losses to the people who knew and loved them, Are so significant to lose four people at one time four absolute lights I don't want to ever get to a place where I'm not able to talk about them I want to always be able to get the word out that they existed they lost their lives and what can I do next to keep other people from from going through this To me, if I don't do that now, then I don't know that I have much meaning. And my goal right now is to help other families, either through all changes, or just getting the word out there to not drive distracted, to try to save other people's lives. You know, we did not get that in this case. You know, there's not enough things in place dealing with distracted driving. And and so that's that's my big thing. And I think the other thing that I have learned in this process is that the judicial system certainly isn't fair. I had worked on the other side of it as a victim advocate. I had worked on the other side of it as a victim witness coordinator um, down in Fayette County. And there needs to be people in place in every county to help victims. I feel like the process is definitely pro defendant. And while I've had other dealings working with groups like the Innocence Project, where I've worked on the other side of that, um, in this particular case, the victims are never announced in court. Um, You wouldn't even know most days that anybody died. And I think some of that somehow needs to change in our system, that victim advocacy needs to be increased um even in our smaller counties like Montgomery, um, we weren't given any sort of a victim advocate to work with. When I did figure out who that person was and contacted them, they never called me back. And I have friends who went through similar things in Sangamon and other counties who have had the advocacy and have had the people that have been helping them get through this process. It's a blessing and a curse that I'm a former victim advocate because, I know how things should be done. I know how families should be notified in terms of death notification. I hope that, you know, our story can make counties really look at their situations and reassess how they treat victims, reassess that you actually return a call. The process itself of the judicial system somehow needs to be more victim-oriented and to help and to help families. Um, and I don't know, maybe I'm that person. Maybe I'm supposed to be the one going around and, and educating some of the people, um, in these smaller communities as to how to handle things. And it's kind of cliche, but don't take things for granted. You know, I took everything for granted in many ways. While I always appreciated my, my two daughters and and everything about them. Um, You just counted on the fact that your family would always be intact. And, you know, just one decision took them all from us. So I want to get a message out there of, you know, loving your family, spending more time with your children, taking more pictures and videos, because in the end, this is all you've got. And I just want people to... You know, find joy every day, no matter how rough things are. And to be kind to others because you don't know what battles they are dealing with. Um, And don't don't take your life for granted or the life of those you love. We started up a Facebook page called Find Joy in the Journey, Love Jenna, which we feel is kind of like Jenna's gift to all of us. And we try to put inspirational quotes or stories or things up there. Um, we, you know, currently have a merchandise sale going on that's designed to put the message on people, whether it be on hats or t-shirts or whatever, to get, get that message out there to find joy in the journey. And because that's, that's really who she was. And we've made the decision that if we have to be on this horrible journey and to be going through all of this, that we are going to do whatever we can every day like Jenna would want us to do to find something to bring us happiness every single day Um, Jenna was the light of her friends she was always laughing and smiling and she wanted other people to do the same and we believe that that is the message that we have to keep going that we have to keep getting the message out there of finding joy because that's really what she brought To everybody that knew her was she put a smile on your face she'd make a silly face if you didn't have a smile on your face and um, she was just known for being so much fun and having such a great sense of humor and we are doing everything we can every single day to attempt to carry that on in her absence the sad days can be really really sad but in the middle We're trying to find joy.
0: That's Brenda Protz, whose daughter Jenna was killed three years ago this month in a head-on accident involving a young distracted driver. Jenna's best friend, Holly Lighty, also died in the accident, along with Jenna's grandparents, William and Jacqueline Protz of Sullivan. According to the Illinois State Police, distracted driving citations were down in 2020 and 2021, in part because of the pandemic, but it still remains a problem, often with deadly consequences. You're listening to Statewide, and we'll return in a moment. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Corn, soy, and wheat make up about 70% of Midwestern farmland, but as the planet heats up, scientists are developing new crops to replace them, plants that can survive and even thrive in a changing climate. Rachel Young produced this story with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. It's about one crop that some scientists and farmers think could be the grain of the future.
5: This is the stuff we're going to be planting this in that field right out here.
7: Carmen Fernholtz has been farming organically since before the term organic farming was even a thing. He owns A-Frame Farm in Madison, Minnesota where he grows corn, soybeans, and small grains, including one you might not have heard of.
5: Right now, we have about 80 acres of kernza.
7: Kernza, a species of wheatgrass. Some scientists and farmers say we need to change the crops we grow in the face of climate change. And kernza could be part of the answer. It's a crop that can feed both people and soil in a warmer world, which is a dream come true for Carmen, who cares a lot about keeping his soil healthy.
5: cringe every time I see soil disturbance.
7: By soil disturbance, Carmen means tilling, churning up the soil to plant new crops. Tilling releases carbon into the air as a greenhouse gas. It disrupts all the processes that make soil healthy. Most corn and soy farmers have to till their fields every year because corn and soy, those are annual crops. Kernza, is different. It's a perennial grain, so its roots get to stay in the ground for several years while the plant above ground keeps producing grain each season. Those roots pull carbon out of the air, they build healthy soil, and they make Kernza resilient to extreme climate events like droughts and floods. And if Kernza really takes off, farmers will be able to make money growing it.
5: It's exciting. and To me, it's just a a tremendous gift to our food system.
7: Kernza is also helping Carmen imagine a new future of growing grains. He says he chats with conventional farmers all the time who see problems with the way we farm today.
5: They're seeing soil degradation, herbicide resistance, increasing costs of production. They're sort of on a treadmill with corn and soybeans, and are looking for something to
0: break out of that. People are very excited at perennial grains.
7: Tim Cruz is the chief scientist at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. They're the ag research organization that's been developing Kernza for the past 20 years, and they want perennial grains like Kernza to replace the annual crops we grow now. That would mean doing away with a lot of that annual tilling and adding the environmental benefits of perennial roots like Kernza's, on millions of acres of the world's croplands.
0: And it's just a matter of getting them to the point where they can actually start to replace the annual crops um, economically.
7: But today, there are just about 4,000 acres of Kernza growing worldwide, most of them in Minnesota. Minnesota is also home to a small but enthusiastic Kernza supply chain as local brewers, bakers, and chefs experiment with niche Kernza products in microbrews, pancake mixes, and dessert bars. National brands are starting to pay attention. Kernza was listed among Whole Foods top 10 food trends of 2022. Still, don't expect to see Wheaties swapped out for Kernzies in the cereal aisle anytime soon. University of Iowa economist Sylvia Secchi says that for Kernza to actually replace the grains we grow now, we'll need to see major changes to the U.S. Farm Bill first. You can't just change the crops. This is a whole system that we need to uh, modify part of that system? Federal subsidies for annuals like corn and soy, which incentivize farmers to grow those crops, even if they end up losing them to extreme climate events.
4: What we need for Kansas to find its place is changes to our farm policy. For example, if you have crop insurance subsidies for corn and beans,
7: right, you should have them for Kernza. Farmer Carmen Fernholz isn't waiting for changes to the federal farm policy. He's been mentoring young organic farmers for a farming future that benefits the earth instead of degrading it.
5: To start seeing the next generations being engaged in it, there's nothing more rewarding.
7: For the Food and Environment Reporting Network, I'm Rachel Young.
0: Congress this year passed a new law that means employers can no longer force employees into arbitration to resolve claims of on-the-job sexual harassment or assault. Advocates say the change will give workers freedom to decide what legal path works best for them and to speak out publicly if they choose to. The electric automaker Rivian, with a major plant in the Bloomington-Normal area, wants to force arbitration anyway. Ryan Denham has that story.
3: The dispute is partly about timing. A former Rivian employee has sued the company in federal court, alleging she was harassed and groped by co-workers at the Rivian plant in Normal. She says it happened multiple times between December 2021 and April of this year and that Rivian failed to stop it. In a new court filing, Rivian says it wants to force that woman to drop the lawsuit and instead resolve her claims through private arbitration, away from the public eye. Even though the new law went into effect March 3rd, Rivian says the woman's claims accrued before that day, meaning the new law doesn't apply. Sharmila Majmadar is executive vice president of policy, programs, and research at Women Employed, a Chicago-based nonprofit advocacy group.
8: I think- This case is an example of the type of case that the ending forced arbitration of sexual assault and sexual harassment act was meant to address.
3: The dispute comes after two years of rapid hiring at Rivian's Normal Plant, which has added 6,000 workers in just the past two years as it's ramped up production of electric trucks, SUVs and delivery vans. It's now Bloomington Normal's second largest employer behind only State Farm. The woman was hired to the battery team at Rivian in December. The woman says she was subjected to, quote, offensive and derogatory comments by her male co-workers, such as being asked where she liked to have sex, her favorite sexual positions, and being told that a male co-worker was making bets that he could have sex with her. She says an engineer groped her in April. About a week later, the woman says she stopped going to work, and she says she told many others in the company, including those in HR, about the harassment. Rivian says that when the woman was first hired, she signed a three-page mutual agreement to arbitrate employment-related disputes document. In its filing last week, Rivian says that means the woman cannot sue and must go through arbitration instead. That's despite the lawsuit being filed September 6th, three months after the enactment date of that new law restricting forced arbitration. Attorneys sometimes like to test out new laws like this. That's according to Kristen Prinz, an employment lawyer and managing partner at Prinz Law Firm in Chicago. She doesn't think Rivian has a strong chance of successfully forcing arbitration, given the new law.
4: I think the law is actually pretty clear, and reading reading this made me go back and double-check the law because I had understood it to be so clear, and it really is clear. It's about when the case is filed.
3: Rivian declined to answer WGLT's questions about the forced arbitration issue. In a statement, it says only that, quote, it expects all of our employees to treat each other with dignity and respect, and they do not tolerate harassment or discrimination of any kind, unquote. The new law passed Congress with bipartisan support, and was signed into law by President Biden in March. It was expected to impact employment contracts for more than 60 million Americans. One of the chief sponsors of the law was retiring Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, whose district includes parts of central Illinois. She said Americans are often asked to enter into arbitration agreements when they, say, sign a lease or download a new app.
6: That terms and conditions box that we've all simply checked off after downloading an app or hiring a service that might just have an arbitration clause hiding in it, ready to strip away your right to go to court if you have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted and you choose to go to court. Businesses
3: tend to prefer arbitration rather than facing lawsuits in open court for several reasons. Sharmila Majmadar with Women Employed says arbitration gives employers more control and the private proceedings are shielded from public view.
8: The vast majority of the time when mandatory arbitration is used, workers lose. So about 80% of the time, the employer prevails. And so it is a process that favors employers.
3: Lawyer Kristen Prince says sometimes a plaintiff may prefer arbitration, especially if they don't want the situation to be publicized.
4: There are plenty of people who don't want privacy and who don't want others to know that they're filing a claim because maybe they think that could limit their future job prospects.
3: Maj Madar says that should be their choice.
8: It should be one of the options available as it relates to kind of a legal path forward, as opposed to being forced to take it.
3: Prins says Rivian's latest move is telling.
8: They clearly aren't just
4: compare, concerned about privacy because it's already in federal court, which is a very public forum, so the fact that they're pushing to have this removed shows that they think a different forum is probably going to be more favorable to them.
3: The lawsuit remains pending
0: in federal court. I'm Ryan Denham. For the first time since 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics has updated its breastfeeding guidelines. The recommendations now include breastfeeding children until age 2 or beyond. Previous recommendations stopped at age 1. The group is bringing its directive more in line with the World Health Organization. It says that's in part to help normalize breastfeeding for older children. But the Academy is also calling for more support for breastfeeding mothers, acknowledging obstacles that exist. Primary among those, time. Serenardi has details.
8: Just how much of a time commitment is breastfeeding? Oh,
5: my God.
8: Ugh. That's Elizabeth Austin, a mom in Normal, adding up the time she spent breastfeeding her three children.
5: Hours, 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 hours.
8: Austin says people often grossly underestimate the time breastfeeding mothers spend feeding their babies and pumping milk.
5: There are statistics out there that tell you it is, another, it is, a, it is a part-time job. On top of probably another full-time job and on top of the other full-time job of raising your kids. Like, it is is exhausting.
8: Austin has a full-time job and has worked through the birth of all three of her children. She says she's worked for companies that have been very supportive of her needs as a breastfeeding mother, providing up to four months of paid time off and designated rooms to pump milk. But she's also worked for companies that were not so supportive.
5: I got told, don't talk about breastfeeding. It makes people uncomfortable.
8: Austin says she was frequently sleep deprived after waking multiple times a night to breastfeed, but was told not to bring her personal problems to work. When she would excuse herself to pump milk, she was met with scorn from her co-workers.
5: It was very much like, where are you going every day? Why are you taking so much time? And it just made me want to scream.
8: Austin says she's a multitasker and would often work while pumping, but it still wasn't enough. Caitlin Wilson is a registered nurse and lactation consultant at Carl Broman Medical Center in Normal. She says she hopes conversation around the new breastfeeding guidelines can spur change for families. I really think it's
1: a call to action for our, you know, our pediatricians, our obstetricians, and our communities as a whole to realize that this is a public health concern, and we really want to support those families that choose to provide milk for their children.
8: And when it comes to the choice of how to feed your children, there is a heavy emphasis placed on breastfeeding. The idea that breast is best is something that's enforced both culturally and medically. Wilson says breast milk contains important properties that can't be found in formula. She says babies are protected from some illnesses through the antibodies found in breast milk.
1: Through those antibodies that we provide to our children we're protecting them against um, possibly having more bouts of respiratory tract infections it's been shown to decrease bouts of diarrhea ear infections obesity and the list kind of just goes on
8: it's hard to turn your back on a list of benefits that goes on and on and some mothers report feeling pressured to breastfeed their babies in order to be good parents that pressure can lead to a real sense of failure when for whatever reason breastfeeding isn't possible And for moms like Katherine Carroll of Normal, who struggled with perinatal mood disorders, breastfeeding can be difficult for a variety of reasons. I had seen
7: um, other people do it. It looked so easy, so natural. Nope, it is hard. It is hard. It is a lot of work. And that was a huge contributing factor for my postpartum depression and anxiety. Carroll says through the support of groups that address
8: perinatal mood disorders, she was finally able to give herself permission to stop breastfeeding.
7: And when I did finally decide to stop, it was a huge weight off of me.
8: Wilson says a mother's mental health is of paramount importance. She says she encourages mothers to take their own well-being into consideration when making decisions around feeding their kids.
5: My personal
1: stance on um, providing food for your child is in any other relationship in your life, if something was causing you mental harm, I would tell you it's okay to part ways of that relationship.
8: That's a sentiment echoed by Austin, who says she got lucky and that breastfeeding her three kids came easily to her. But she knows every mother has their own journey and has to make the decisions that are best for them. If you want to do
5: it, if it comes naturally to you, if it comes easily to you, like great. If not, there's this is 2022. There's plenty of healthy alternatives as well.
8: Austin says no matter the recommendations offered by the American Academy of Pediatrics, breastfeeding is an incredibly personal decision that's influenced by many factors. And she says it's important to have a realistic understanding of what breastfeeding for any amount of time entails. It's exhausting. I mean, and it goes through ebbs and flows and phases.
5: And I don't say that to discourage moms at all. But I, I almost I almost say that not to moms, but to the rest of society.
8: And it's not just breastfeeding, Austin says. Society has a lot of work to do around parenting in general.
5: We as a country, I think, just need to change our mindset of what it takes to raise children.
8: A recent UNICEF study ranked 41 high and middle-income countries on family friendliness indicators that included paid parental leave following the birth of a child. The United States ranked dead last.
0: Sarah Nardi with that story. That's all the time we have for statewide. Thanks for being with us and join us again next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find all of our episodes. They're available at the website, nprillinois.org. Just look for statewide. And our weekly podcast can be found through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.